BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Lisa Pressman, and today's episode is lovingly brought to you by my friends at Healthy Nest. You can go to healthynesting.com for the first environmental working group certified diapers, wipes, and cleaning products that are so good for the earth and good for your children. So I'm very proud to have them as my sponsor. And now I don't want to take another minute of your time before I introduce Allison Briscoe-Smith. She is a professor and psychologist and the director of diversity, equity, and inclusion at the Wright Institute in Berkeley, California. And she is taking her time to have this conversation because it feels so urgent, but it is a conversation that has been going on and will continue to go on. So I don't by any means want to suggest that we're just one and done, but I am thrilled that she took the time to give her science and her thoughts about raising anti-racist kids. And I hope that this episode helps you as you think through how you and your family are going to respond to the world right now. I hope you enjoy this episode. It really was thought-provoking for me. I know that I had this conversation with Allison and was changed from it. And that is very unusual in one hour, but it was pretty important. And I am so thrilled that you all are here to join me in this conversation. You know, the the main approach that I take with this is that I work with families in the context, families, schools, organizations, all these different folks um, to kind of think about how do we talk about race? That tends to be like the big kind of question, how do we? But really the main thing I want to get out is just do it. Um, The majority of folks are not talking about race. This falls along a people of color versus white folks kind of split. So if there's a forum to really encourage people to talk about it, that's really what, what, what I would like to get out. We can have conversations about race with two, three, four, five, six, seven-year-olds, all the way up to our, you know, our adolescents. And we can do it in a way that will actually help to address systemic racism. We can do it. So that's my main point that I want to kind of get out. Great. Yeah. Let's, should we go through to for young elementary school age? Yeah. Tween, in a very simple way, mm-hmm. how are we talking about this? Let's start with two. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the foundational premise that I want us to kind of think about is um, one of which is that children see race. And as young as six months old, the developmental uh, psychological literature shows that children are paying attention to and noticing race. Now, they're not doing it like we do as, as grownups, right. but they are doing it. So that's one of the pieces. Like while they're noticing and they're seeing, they're not, frankly, carrying our baggage yet. So that means that kids are, are, are paying attention to this. And what we find is that Adults are resoundingly silent. They're not saying anything while kids are, are noticing. And that silence, I'll, I'll give the benefit of the doubt. Sometimes people don't want to say anything because they don't want to teach their children to be racist. Mm-hmm. But what that means is that kids are entering into a vacuum where they're not having developmental support and understanding big things that they see happening around them. Like, why is everybody you know, brown that does that type of work? Or why do people get treated this way? Or, Mm -hmm. you know, that's being left silent. So if we start at two, one of which is just listening to what children are noticing. And the easy way to begin is by narrating within books. So there's research that shows that we are frequently narrating gender as we read books, but not narrating race. 
parents get a little nervous about that. Well, what do you mean? I mean, when you read Snowy Day, like we all read Snowy Day. Like we all do, right? Notice the color of his, the little boy's skin. No, oh, Peter's brown, brown like me. Or um, brown, do you know any kids that are brown? And then keep on moving. It doesn't have to be like, it can be small little pieces of noticing that, but building in that kind of language. The research also indicates that the more that we build in developmental flexibility, Mm -hmm. the the ability for them to categorize on multiple dimensions, that's linked up to higher academic achievement and lower prejudice. So encouraging kids to categorize on multiple different dimensions, including hair, color, shape, size, all these kind of, you know, things, categories, we can kind of do that in a way that allows children to see more flexibly. And Mm -hmm. that actually helps support them and not thinking in really overly biased ways. So that's two, that's four. And then we can also really easily begin teaching them that difference isn't bad. You know, right. just, just start there. Like, notice the difference. And there's a family that, that um, had this mission statement uh, around variety is a spice of life. Mm. You know, so that's a family that when they notice something that's different, they were really encouraging them. Oh, isn't that interesting or cool? Or we're, diff- we're different within our family. But that's very different than difference is bad. So I would think about starting in those kind of ways. A client said to me the other day that her son has two friends named Max. I just made the name Max up. Two friends named Max. One friend has brown skin. One friend has white skin. She does not want to say that because she's afraid that her son will say brown Max or white Max. And I said... What are you hearing when you imagine this moment that your son says, I want to play date with Brown Max versus White Max? And she says, I'm hearing a racist kid. And I, I was like, oh, because you're putting a, a history in his experience that is not there. Yeah. But maybe the silence about this very obvious difference from white parents mm-hmm. who are trying to like not mention something that right. gives some kind of either invisibility to color right. or a sense that there's something wrong with color. Mm-hmm. And it's this intention gone awry that has consequences that are pretty right. dire. Right. So, so the two-year-old mm-hmm. conversation is so important. And I guess for certainly white families, because my my assumption, and this may be a very wrong assumption, is that Black families are never in that situation of going, yep. like, struggling <laughs> to say to say skin color. Yeah. Well, the, the research bears out exactly what you're talking about, which is that there's a much higher rate of conversations about race within Black families and families of color in particular. Not 100%. Um, you know, not everybody, according to this research, but much, much higher um, than white families are. And I think, I mean, I love that you asked the question because I think it's a question that we need to be asking all of ourselves, which is when we get into that panicked worry that our child is narrating or speaking about race, what is it that we're worried about? Mm-hmm. Uh, are we worried that people will think that we're racist? Because mm, that's oh my sometimes God. what it is. Ding, ding, ding. I, right? I have a feeling that that is a huge part of it. Yeah. Right. And then, I mean, I also think about, okay, let, let's say that we also spend so much, people spend so much time avoiding being racist. No, 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 I'm not. I have to defend that I'm not. I'm not. As opposed to like, oh, I think what you're really worried about is being bad. Yeah. No one wants to be bad and nobody wants to be a bad parent. Right. That's the worst, like being a bad parent, right? So, yes. but again, we're moving to defend on that as opposed to, I don't know what a racist means to you. Um, I don't know what that definition really means, but I think people are really moving quickly to it must mean that I'm bad as opposed to it means that I've been impacted by a social structure and system 400 years that has told me about who is better than others. Right. That you may be benefiting from some unearned privilege. Not to say that you never worked hard, but, you know, as we're kind of paying attention now that, you know, white families might be, have the ability to go for a jog in a way that, you know, my family can't. Right. So that is, doesn't make anybody white jogging a bad person. But like, I'd like to know more about the situation than, than that. But that's what happens in these moments of parenting is that mm-hmm. as soon as our child is kind of, you know, asking that kind of question. And then what ends up happening is that we shut down and we foreclose an opportunity to be developmentally appropriate right? Which is, oh, you notice that we have different skin colors. What do you think about that? Mm -hmm. Right? 
there's an idea that, and it's very much linked to this, this language, which is that I don't want to teach my children that race matters. Right. I don't want them. And I understand, and I kind of get that. And we're not there. Race does matter. Race is how we're organizing, you know, how people are treated and kids see that they're super smart. They see that. So we're basically telling them race doesn't matter yet. They can see that on the playground. They see it in the classroom and our kids of color, you know, we feel it. Our kids are feeling it. They, they know two, three, four, five, six, that they're being treated differently. And then you get that feeling like as a, as a child, you question your own feelings and observations. If nobody's naming something, but you're seeing it, you don't have the scaffolding to understand what's happening. And so you question everything that's going on inside of you and that grows. Right. And then it also means that we're not providing a scaffolding to support children in being anti-racist. Right. If, we're, if we can't, well, well, no, the skin color didn't matter because everybody told me that it didn't matter. Well, maybe there was a way that you actually get more scared when you see people of that skin color. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about why. But if we take out, if we subscribe to a colorblind ideology, then we take out our ability to actually speak to that. And that actually disarms our kids from acting in ways that are pro-social, that are unkind, or about you know, actually helping them to, to stop all of this. Like, I think we have evidence to show that colorblindness didn't work. Right. I mean, we're still- We're here. You know, we're here. You know, colorblindness was a big push in the 1980s and 90s in terms mm-hmm. of pedagogy and schooling and education. Um, and it didn't really work out in terms of having everything kind of go away. And I still know that we want to subscribe to, you know, being viewed by the, you know, judged by our character and who we are and seen as people. You know, of course, like I, I look forward to that day. And right now it's still mattering. And we've got to operate in a way to kind of dismantle it. So I, I think I've been so impressed by the ways in which children and young children, when they are equipped with a racial language, can do this. You know, I've heard, you know, nine-year-olds, six-year-olds, little ones talk about the ways in which they want to act towards justice because they have a language. And, and it's amazing. So that's the other shift, which is not a shift for everyone. Mm-hmm. But the other shift for a lot of us is it's not, we're not just teaching about racism. We're trying to raise anti-racist kids. Yeah. You know, those things you are too embarrassed to talk about when it comes to dating, like when to say I love you, how to define the relationship. Well, We Met at Acme touches upon all of those subjects and more, and we get right into it with our guests and talk about their dating lives and also what not to do when it comes to dating, because we're all kind of confused together. So you can tune in every Sunday to We Met at Acme, and maybe you can learn a thing or two while I learn a thing or two. I have a difficult question to ask, and I'm like, not sure if I'm going to ask this the right way. Let's try it. Is it possible in a world, in this world, in the United States, when we know maybe 5% of white children are even in communities where they interact with anybody but other white children? It's a tiny percentage, and I'm sure I'm off. But can you raise an anti-racist kid in a predominantly white community? Mm. And if you can, how can you? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think so a couple different layers to that. One of which is I was like sidestepping like, what is a racist? But then I claimed and invoked anti-racist. So then we have to think about what that is. And so I think anti-racism is about having children, people, adults, all of us work really hard to pay attention to how the system works differentially and to be in action to try to reduce or mitigate our system's perspective around race. So it's going to take each one of us to kind of do that, that work. And that's hard because our brains are involved and our stereotypes are involved and all the. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think, you know, anti-racist is one thing, but I'm going to translate it a little bit differently, which is um, let's go to just some basics. I help families construct um, family mission statements. It's the thing that we say to our kids all the time, all the time. So besides like stop hitting each other, they're usually things like (laughs) who we are. So like we are outdoor people. We are kind. We believe that variety is the spice of life. We, 
it's anything that you begin with like a we. And, and a lot of folks have some very shared kind of, and there's a way that the term family values has been co-opted, but yeah. we have these, these values, right? About who we are. And we also have values about who we want our children to be. Usually most folks will land somewhere with kindness or loving or compassion in there. So rather getting kind of stuck in the notion of kind of anti-racist, let's just go to like, you want your kids to be kind. Mm. You want your kids to be compassionate. You want your kids to love. So we can take that back to kind of the question, can we teach and can we support any of our children to be kind and to be compassionate and to be loving? Absolutely. Can we have them be kind, compassionate, and loving across differences? Absolutely. Is it easier to do that when we are in relationship with people who are different with us? It's probably easier to do that. It's probably Mm -hmm. more available to do that. It's probably less of an act of imagination, Mm -hmm. right? And I think what you've also identified is that we are more segregated today than we were in the civil rights movement. Mm. You know, in the, in the space where I'm living in the, in the Bay Area, two thirds of the schools in San Francisco are predominantly one race. Um, and as we kind of get further and further with our economic disparities, the fact of the matter is, as you're saying, most white folks don't have access to or are um, not in relationship with people that are different than them racially. That's different mm-hmm. than other spaces. So that's what I think we have to work hard on. How is it that we actually support folks engaging in really authentic ways with their neighbors or with the neighbors in the town over? Right. Um, So I think it's a challenge if we continue to segregate. I think it's a challenge um, if we don't feel a persistent kind of need to engage. But I think if we think about, do we have shared values around teaching our children how to be loving, kind, compassionate, good citizens? Then, then we can do that. And not only can we do that, we have been doing that. I mean, look at the people on the streets, look at the youth who are out on the streets, I mean. you know, and youth who are on the streets, which we have to think about this in the context of a, of, of a pandemic, are putting their lives on the line. Right. That's what it means to go outside with 15,000 other people. Um, and those are young people and those are old people. Like, we got a track record for this. I know we have a track record for some terrible stuff, but, but I'm going to pay attention to the ways that I think we can kind of cultivate even more of uh, the amazing love and generosity that, that can be present. <sighs> <laughs> got to keep that hope alive. It's, it's tough, but I just I wrote a piece. I just wrote a piece actually about how, like, how tired and hopeless I am. But I just in, but it's okay for us to move through those waves, right? I think uh, you know it was a place of actually just reckoning because I had this fight with my mom about whether or not things are better now than they were, than they were. and she's like, "Nope, things are worse." I'm like, "How could you possibly say things are worse? Like, we've got the internet, and uh, you know, we've got better healthcare, and all this." And her sense was like that she thought, as a you know, as a black woman growing up during the civil rights movement, that we'd be further along. Right. Uh, now, and so, oh, okay. And, uh, you know, I'm just, as I say with my mom, like I'm pathologically hopeful and just think we've got lots of evidence for where this can go and that our kids can be involved in it too. I mean, the pathologically hopeful is the greatest. <laughs> That's the greatest. Are you at the Greater Good Institute? I am, I am a little bit. You? So I'm, I'm their like senior fellow. And that, that's the only reason I'm their senior fellow is that, um, I'm the first person that they ever gave money to to study. So I just happened to have the, the people that ran that organization right when it got us started. They gave me money for my dissertation. And my dissertation was on how to talk to Pathological people. optimism? <laughs> yeah, and there's that. But, um, but it was... It's to, oh, study. your dissertation was talking to kids about race. Yeah. And so they've kind of kept... I've just been hanging out long enough. So now it's been almost 20 years that I've been working with them, <laughs> writing for them and co-authored a chapter in a book and co-hosted. So, so there's some places there, but it's good. I, I also really enjoy being partnered with them because I, you know, I have a language around the science. Like I like to point to the science around this and the science is pretty good around um, what can be done to help reduce or mitigate prejudice and bias. Like it's possible. And the science around what can be done, is there science around what can be done that is something someone listening who's just thinking about their own household and their own work that they're going to do. Yep. What do we know? Super quick example. Researchers brought together a child, seven-year-old with high prejudice. I think there were seven, eight or nine. High prejudice and a child with low prejudice. Mm -hmm. Had them interact, talk to each other for three minutes. At the end of that conversation, the kid with high prejudice reduced their prejudice. 
three minutes of nine-year-olds talking to each other around relatively benign things. So if that is something that can happen between nine-year-olds, then what would our conversation be like at home? And then there's also this piece too that, that I appreciate that you talked about before. We get worried in doing this right. And I really just want to invite us, let's go ahead and make some mistakes in this and then apologize to our, like, have you ever apologized to your kid? Like their mm-hmm. minds are blown. So this doesn't have to be the perfect, the perfect talk. You're, we're already teaching and talking about race now anyway. Even if you've been silent about it, okay, then you've That's, been teaching Then you're them. teaching that. So you can just say out loud or listen, how do you understand what's going on in the streets? What do you think that's about? How do you make sense of that? And you can ask that to littles all the way up, mm-hmm. right? And, and really listen to what they're saying. And we can also just have conversations with them about it. This is what I think. I wonder about, you know, mama has big feelings about this and I don't think I'm always right. That's a great thing that we can teach our kids. Trauma is an area of expertise for you. How do you explain community trauma mm-hmm. to a child mm-hmm. that's, let's say, younger than six? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, what's the balance between making sure that you protect that childhood bubble mm-hmm. and especially for a child who's black and like mm-hmm. could be terrified? Right, right. What's the balance between making sure that you know what you need to know mm-hmm. and also that you're supported and I don't know, that you still contain some of the scary stuff before the point where you absolutely can't anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's two tensions that I hear with that. One of which is, is our job as parents to protect or to prepare? And, you know, is it to prepare? Does it have, can you protect and prepare? Or is that just not possible? I think you can, but I think they're kind of levers that go up and down. I don't think you can fully protect and keep the bubble while also preparing them. Mm. I think you can have a smaller bubble or, you know, however that kind of analogy works. But, um, (laughs) you know, I think I hear so often parents saying like, I don't want to teach them about race and ruin, ruin their sense of the world. I don't want to teach, like they don't even notice color like I do. I don't want to teach them that because that's going to burst their bubble. Now, there's two issues with that. That bubble is allowable for white kids in ways that it's not for kids of color. And again, the research shows that if we do not talk to black and brown kids in particular around race, that they have higher rates of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Why? Because they're walking around the world and people are treating them differently. Right. And there's, again, no naming of that. So then they have that same feeling of yeah. coming to terms with what they're thinking and feeling and that that's not validated by their yeah. grownups. And it's the same way to kind of think about the, if you can stay within that bubble, then that is privilege. The longer you get to keep your, you know, your child in the, in the bubble of a conversation, like think about it this way. Like it means that if you've never had to talk about, we're going to be losing our home, then, mm-hmm. then that's, you know, that's a bubble that I'd love to have for my kids that economic, you know, changes never happen. Well, unless you've had to do it. So then I'm privileged because I haven't had to have that conversation mm-hmm. yet. There's another way for us to think. So I think there's that kind of tension uh, between those that I think we have to calibrate. And then we need to take into consideration our privilege with that. If you don't have to explain to kids that um, when a police officer interacts with them, that they may be in danger, that's privilege. I have to have that conversation with my nine-year-old son. Well, that's what I wanted to... First of all, I'm so sorry that you have to have that conversation with your nine-year-old son because I can't imagine it. Yeah. A Mm three-year-old. Do you have to have that conversation with a three-year-old son? Yeah. Well, I have to have that conversation. I have to have the foundations for the conversation. What are those? Those foundations are we as a family work really hard to treat everybody with kindness and with love and fairly. And not everybody does. Mm. You know, when you're on the playground and someone comes and pulls your toy away, that wasn't fair. That wasn't kind. We don't like it. Right. So it's not the bubble that everybody acts like this. It's the foundation of fairness and kindness is what we strive for, but it's not available. It's not always there. It's not always there. So you're not talking about specifically how you need to respond if a police officer comes near you. Only in part because I have been so privileged, even within my own blackness, to not have to have that be something that my little ones see. And I know many, many black families who've had to have that conversation with their three-year-old. You know, I can think about a friend of mine who was pulled over while he was driving his three-year-old daughter home. 
right? And so he's got to negotiate and explain to her what's going on, you know, within that. Right. So there's there's that. And, you know, the other part that you kind of talked about was in the context of kind of trauma about, you know, I'm at a place where I have my privileges and I don't want to tell my three-year-old, the police are coming for you and just leave her at that, right? That That's also not always true. We can have, you know, there's all these other kinds of pieces around that. Mm-hmm. But the idea, and there's this idea around fire and brimstone conversations that when we mm-hmm. give our children information that is scary to them, they're going to let us know if they can take it or if they can. And we also did think about a temperament of our ch- children too. So, you know, I invoked my right. son, who's 11, not nine. I should remember that. Ah! <laughs> um, my 11 year old is um, way more anxious like me. Okay. Mm-hmm. A lot more anxiety, you know. His first question when I ever talk to him about like a new person is, are they dead? And I'm like, okay, so he runs anxious, right? Oh, yeah. My nine-year-old is not anxious. She is brave. She's, um, you know, feels really proud about invoking that. So it turns out not only developmentally and gender-wise, I've got to titrate my conversations for them differently. Mm. And the way that I learned how to titrate it is I told them the same message. We had another incident of kind of violence within our community. And that was really targeted um, towards Latinx folks. My kids are multiracial and they're Mexican. So I had this kind of conversation with them that was really honestly too much for them. And I I told them like all this violence has happened within this community and they were targeted because they were Latinx. I told them that on the night that I was leaving to go to a Latinx event. Mm -hmm. And so my kids were like, are you going to be safe? What's going on? Are we, you know what? And my son spiraled out right? He couldn't sleep. He had a hard time. And then my daughter was just kind of stoic about it. But what I learned about it was, oh, I gave them too much. Mm -hmm. I gave them too much at the wrong time. And I went back and I apologized. And I said, I'm really sorry. I gave you too much information. It was really hard. Let's talk about why you're worried. I'm safe now. I'm safe here. You're safe here. So the kids will tell us if you you blow it. (laughs) If you blow it, you will know. You'll know. And I, I know that like, I don't want people to be cavalier with like, I'm going to go ahead and give them, you know, here, let's watch this video of someone getting murdered. Right. That, that, that nobody should see that. No adult, I, nobody. Right. That. That's, that's not something for anyone to watch. And you cannot take those images out of your no. head and no. you can honor and fight yeah. without that. Right. Right. And that is one of the problems though, that we think about as we scale up to teens our teens are seeing that. Our teens are watching that in a viral ray, way. Uh, I have a student who did a dissertation who found, surprise, surprise, that, um, that the images of viral Black death are deleterious to Black girls' health. Um, right. And it's on their phones, right? And it's being sent and pinged. And so we need to intervene a little bit more with our adolescents around that to actually teach them and equip them to, you know, as much as possible to how would you be able to turn away from that image and come and get help or do something else? Um, and that's really hard because it's a dopamine hit every time you see something like that. Right, the, the, right. Dicting our kids to those images, but how could I talk about it with them? How could I think with them about it? And you just have to have the assumption is that if they're honestly over 12 and have access to the internet, they've seen it. Um, right. so, so you just got to assume it. And so, you know, when you saw that image, what was that like? Not did you? Right. You know, this is about porn, not violence and murder. Mm-hmm. But um, a friend of mine the other night was talking about her 15-year-old and she said, you know, we haven't talked about it because I just don't think he's seen porn. And I, you know, I, so I just haven't asked him. It definitely was not, have you seen porn? It right. was, you know, like, how much are you seeing or what are yeah. you, what have you seen? Yeah. Yeah. But I think that that assumption that once you're over, yeah, basically you're 13 and up, you're seeing, you're not, yeah. we can't really make sure that they don't see those things. Right. So then it's the conversation of how, yep. how hurtful it is to themselves. Yep. And that kind of the same kind of notion that we're talking about, like, here's an opportunity for preparation. You know, we can okay. prepare them. When you see this thing. Knowing that you will. It's okay. going to happen and that you're not, because the other thing that happens is, is that kids feel shame that they're not supposed to see it. And then right. they, once shame kicks in, they're not going to tell me that they're seeing this thing on this like magical box of dopamine and energy and joy. Right. You know, they're not going to tell me that when- Because what when, if you take it away? So, it, you know, I think that, that, you know, these are all the same, you know, again, I have one kind of common kind of place, which is there are opportunities to kind of 
be proactive. And, you know, there's this great analogy um, that, you know, we know how to do things with our children. We know how to actually equip them for things that will take their and other people's lives away. We teach them how to drive. We don't teach them how to drive by never showing them cars. We don't teach them how to drive by never allowing them to, to do, you know, to do right. this with us. But we have slow graduated preparation, right? And then they see us engaging in this. And so we narrate it and we tell them. And there's a wonderful psychologist that gave me that analogy that I can't remember her name, but I'll find it to give her due credit. But that analogy makes a whole lot of sense to me. Really and we, also can, we can think about that in terms of these other spaces, whether it's like porn or, or, or drinking or yeah. consent or... Um, and also the same things are true, right? Like even if it's a child who never is going to drive, don't we want them to be prepared for what to do when a car is there? Mm-hmm. Even if it's a child who we never want them to drink, is there an opportunity for us to be prepared? Even if it's a conversation about consent, that's not just a conversation for girls. Right. That's got to be a conversation. So even in this conversation about how to operate in, in less racist ways or less racially divisive ways or how to be more... Shouldn't that be a conversation for white folks and for folks of color Mm -hmm. and something that we can prepare for? We can set up the foundations for this conversation. My three-year-old knows that she's got to buckle herself in, in a car. The car seat is, is the, the great, you know, boundary that everybody is willing to set. And you're totally right. They don't question it because you've explained it a million times and you don't bend. No. You don't negotiate on right. whether or not... <laughs> They're going to have to buckle up. Right, right, right. And then we don't have to negotiate about whether or not children are going to see terrible images. Mm. Let's prepare them. Let's anticipate. Let's winnow that down as much as possible. But it is if it's not on your tightly controlled iPhone that you know what's happening, then I can tell you homies next door got one or right. someone else has one. You know, so basically somebody- the minute they're leaving the house, which maybe right now was a small window of not leaving the house. But the minute they're leaving the house, they have a play date, they have um, their own phone. I mean, they need to be prepared for everything. Yep. Yeah. So it's also kind of thinking about, I I think the the other bigger piece that I want us to kind of think about is that there's so many different places as we as parents have expertise in or know that we really talk about really well. And so whether it's like, okay, had to talk about divorce with my child. I know how to do that. That's hard. That's complicated. Or I know how to talk about driving or I know how to talk about sex. These are all same foundational. Like I I just don't want people to think about race as some sort of separate or ancillary. You know, if you've had a hard conversation with your kids, think about what you did to do that and have that conversation, how to teach them about that and take the same principles. Mm. You know, like this doesn't have to be separate or new or let's sit down at a dinner table and do this. It can be something that you've already, you know, like something that you've already done before. Of course, we shouldn't turn the news on with young children around. And frankly, I don't know that anybody needs to turn the news on at all, um, especially for those of us who bend anxious. Yep. But if you can't, I mean, again, it goes back to, you, if you can't control that kids are going to have seen the news, gotten ideas about things, what can we do as parents to intercept that influence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think one of the things, as much as I spend so much time talking about talking, I think we really got to listen. You saw that thing on TV. What was that like for you? What do you think was happening? What do you think was going on? What do you think that makes you, you know, how are you feeling? And then also watching and noticing with little ones, we'll see it show up in their play. Mm-hmm. Quick example, I was convinced my little one didn't know about coronavirus, right? Just didn't understand it, right? Convinced. Until she took all her baby dolls and lined them up in a clinic and started giving them shots. Oh my God. Okay, all right. <laughs> she, she might know. You might, she might have an idea, right? But I had to listen to that, right? I had to listen. Oh, this is not a coincidence that she's actually seeing and that's what little ones do. They'll play out what they see. So let's watch her kids play. You know, are they, how are they engaging in their play? What's really showing up? But we also have to listen to our older ones too. You know, um, I was thinking, I was, you know, I talk about my middle daughter as being like the brave one. Um, she's doing a singing class online, which is great, a songwriting class, which was created actually by young people that are doing this for free. It's amazing. And um, the a teenager wrote to me afterwards and said, you know, uh, I told her that songwriting is like a, an emotional diary and that it's an opportunity for her to get her big feelings out. 
And so her song is called, Are We Safe? (gasps) And it was a song about whether or not she's safe in the midst of coronavirus. And here I am, like, she's good. <laughs> she's got it. She's have it. So we got to listen. You know, I'm giving yeah. all the kind of talks, but I have to listen. And also sometimes it has to be someone else outside the family, an auntie, cousin, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was so grateful that this young woman was communicating with me. So it opened up a space of dialogue, right? And mm-hmm. she also has this way of now she's writing this song to move through her feelings. feelings. <laughs> and all, you know, all the things. So, But we've got to, <sighs> you know, to go back to your question. We've got to listen to what's happening in the moment, but also just to have the capacity, which is really hard in this moment to do the hard listening of how are they playing? How are they doing? How are they interacting? How are they sleeping? And our capacity to do that is really challenged right now because we're in a pandemic and we're homeschooling or we're trying to fight for our jobs or we're working. So that's also comes back to like, we've got to do the work for ourselves so that we have the capacity to listen to how they're dealing with you know, dual pandemics of racial violence and Corona. Like, I mean, it's, it's so crazy that that sentence just came out of your mouth without <laughs> any exaggeration whatsoever. Right, right. Two so pandemics. Have some, some grace with the whole situation. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know, like I'm not at my best parenting game right in this moment. Right, I mean, I think we can both agree <laughs> that we are probably, you know, operating from not, not our best selves in in parenting. But I mean, the one thing that maybe comes out of this from parents, particularly mothers or anybody who's mothering is that we are learning to accept with ease as the days go by that we are definitely not operating from even close to getting it perfect. And Uh since we never could, but kind of maybe at other times might've thought it was possible. Maybe this is a time to say, oh man, I mean, that ship sailed. So let's just (laughs) do what we can. And our kids are going to be loved and taken care of and, you know, supported. And I think back to your expertise about trauma, that we know that there are certain things that we can do if it's just us. Yep. Yeah to help kids through anything. Yep. Yep. That we, we can, I mean, the other piece that I really want us to kind of attend to is um, it's time for us to do some, taking our own stock of the stories within our own families. Mm-hmm. We don't have to recreate the wheel here. Somebody in your family had a hard time. Maybe you, maybe your grandma, maybe somewhere. And when I mean had a hard time, like went through a war, yeah. immigrated. My grandparents were Holocaust survivors. So that is a story, like, you don't get to be here without a story of survival there. And so I think the more that we do things like connect our children to those stories, Mm -hmm. you know, that there is a shared space there of grief and of loss and of overwhelm and not knowing what to do when people were really unkind, right? Yeah. There's a way for us to tune into those stories. So, you know, as you were asking kind of questions about how do we explain this, right? So, I mean, I think, you know, within your family, how do you explain the Holocaust to your children? You know, how do we think about that? It's really interesting. I've, I've obsessed over this for, for decades, but very much in the past few years. And because my father was a child of survivors, he was exposed, you know, he was born right out of the war and to two traumatized people who were in no frame of mind to be raising a child. Mm -hmm. And then they had more children. And I marvel that that anybody goes on after that. But I will say it was never not a conversation in our house. Not for five seconds. We used to have like a, a joke who could like count the number of times there was a reference, but it was like constant, constant. And my grandmother would point to her tattoo on her arm, not, not once in a while, but constantly. If I brought a friend over, I was like, listen, Mm -hmm. my grandmother's going to sit you down in a hot second. (laughs) Right, right, right. And the thing that I thought that I actually said to my parents recently was, I'm not super thrilled that at from birth on, like I remember in pre-K 
there was a big project that the school did where they wanted to represent 1 million children who died in Treblinka. Yeah. So they wanted to do, we did like flowers out of um, tissue paper right, right. and, uh, you know, pipe cleaners and then mm-hmm. filled the gym with 1 million so that we could comprehend wow. that many deaths. And yeah. I said to my parents later in life and to two of my best friends in the world who grew up with this, we went to the same school. We kind of had the same parents of this particular, you know, whose parents had survived the Holocaust. And I was like, did I need at four to hear about the million children <laughs> right, who were right, murdered? Or right. might we have talked a little bit like some seed planting? Right. But right. do we need to talk about the the like horror of it right. that early? And then it was constant. And then, right. you know, the message was very much never forget. Mm-hmm. But it's different because I'm still white skinned and walking mm-hmm. through the world, very privileged. And I'm, right. I've never, I mean, I'm sure I've experienced anti-Semitism, but like I've been so privileged. But my fear was that there's so much that was put into this early trauma, early right. t- talk of this trauma yeah. that... It's almost like, I mean, I think epigenetics shows us this. I mean, right, the grandchildren right. of Holocaust survivors are all sorts of anxiety, um, right? And it's right. and it's a pro- it would have been appropriate to be anxious, right? Right. And right. If you were a Jew in Poland yeah. or Germany, yeah. yeah. But maybe right now it's not super appropriate for me to be on heightened alert at all times. Yeah, yeah. And so I wonder, was mm-hmm. too much of that brought mm-hmm. in in my early childhood when yeah. I? You know, it's a different story. If you're a black, mm-hmm. you are still at risk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's different than yeah. like talking about historic risk. Right, right. But I struggle with it and I don't know yeah. even my question, but I think that's, yeah. where I, that's where I was wondering, like how do yeah. you bring in community trauma yeah. without, without... Overwhelming a kid. Yeah. Well, I mean, I wonder, like, I really appreciate hearing about that. And it's really it's helpful for me to kind of think about because I, you know, I don't want to just kind of give these kind of trite things around like, let's talk about, because what I hear you kind of saying is also, you know, your um, grandparents, they weren't post-traumatic. They were in the trauma, right? right. They're yes. a lot, so they were in the trauma. So their bandwidth and capacity to speak on this in a way that was moderated or wasn't there. And so that also is helpful. We have people right now whose bandwidth to engage in the conversation isn't there because it's trauma now. That's right. You know, George Floyd's family cannot talk about this as a moment of resilience in this moment because they're in it. Right. right? So I I also do think about, and I think about, it's not, I don't want to draw equivalencies because it's not the same, but I think, you know, my father grew up as a poor black kid in New Jersey with extraordinary amounts of just bigotry and racialized violence, right? And he's talking to me about that and talked to me about that super early, all the time, fire and brimstone, they're coming for you. He also was a, um, he was an anesthesiologist in Vietnam and had lots of PTSD from Vietnam and had this slide deck of images from Vietnam, some of which Oh my God, I had the slide deck slide of deck. the images from the war. And yeah. it was like bodies going in ovens. And yes. I'm like, no, I don't think you need to, sh- <laughs> Just like, show why did that. I see that? And I saw that from jump, right? right. Like he would right. put that slide deck on. So I think about that, like that is not filtered. So I think what you're doing is helping me be really, um, and helping this conversation be really one that's more nuanced. So it's not just, we survive things and but okay, but this has to go back to how are you doing? If I'm still super traumatized, if I'm still in a space of being raw and fearful for my life, then I need help telling that story to my kid. Yeah. Because otherwise I'm going to give them my fear. Right. And right. then we end up anxious. Going to psychology. Exactly. Right. So it's not terrible, but what right. it is also because I had the conversation that my father's had with me around race was not my experience. I experienced you know, class privilege, educational privilege, and light skin privilege. And what grew up, I grew up in Hawaii. It was a very different kind of setting. So his messages didn't really make sense to me. Mm-hmm. But I also wonder if he had the capacity to listen, or if your grandparents had the capacity to listen, if they would have noticed, right? 
But I also hear, and I, I want to be compassionate, like they were trying to give you all the message of how to survive because they, totally. didn't, they, they didn't know this wasn't going to happen again. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's such an important yeah. point. It really comes from a place of it, you're in your trauma yeah. and you have to protect your young. There's no ability to say, wait a second. Yeah. You know, what do yeah. we really need to do today? You're safe. There was none of that. Right. You don't know, you know, right. any second now. And so if your father has that and he's yep. trying to raise you yeah. to make sure you're safe. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the part of the conversation that I never have had with anybody, have mm-hmm. wondered about. And I thought yeah. I'm going to have a trauma person. <laughs> I want to know. But I, I am thinking about yeah. like George Floyd, yeah. his family right yeah. now. I think that yeah. was a, that, that's exactly the point is like in that moment, yeah. it's not a story of like this beautiful, resilient movement. Mm-mm, mm-mm. It's trauma. And yeah. so I wonder, and I... My family's amazing. My grandfather's still alive. And, yeah. you know, I I think we have gotten a tremendous amount of humor out of all of the darkness from the yeah. past. Yeah. But I just am obsessed with the fact that mm. I felt like the whole school that I went to, because it was yeah. a Jewish day school, yeah. Yeah. was predicated on making sure the kids never forgot. That was the yeah. whole school. That was like, yeah. yes, you should learn a little Shakespeare, a little math, but yeah. really it was never forget. And I mm-hmm. was, I was thinking I've, you know, I've wondered what does that do? And again, yeah. I'm not making the comparison because I'm not in present danger. And if you are right. a black child yeah. growing up in the United States, you are. So it's very yeah. different, but yeah. I still struggle with that balance between do I wait for the other shoe to drop at all right. times? Right. Because right. I was basically brought into this world to know that every day was like, listen, yeah, you survived today, but it's, you know, that Not was- guaranteed for tomorrow. It, yeah, like tomorrow is very unlikely. Yeah. <laughs> and I yeah. don't know. So I, yeah. but you also need to be prepared. So that's yeah. where that, I think that protective versus yeah. prepared question for me comes in. And I feel so distant because I'm like, how dare I even ask that as a white-skinned privileged woman who has the privilege of totally protecting my kids if I want to. And even when I, you know, even when I talk to them about all of this, they don't feel threatened. They feel horrified. Yeah. They don't feel threatened. Yeah. But I mean, I I think the pieces that I try to draw to are the pieces that we have, you know, shared spaces of conversation that we don't have to equate them. But, you know, this conversation that you're having with your own family is really, I think, super important, really helpful for me as I kind of think about it, as I'm trying to support families too, is because we have to think about, you know, the capacity that we have to have these conversations. And the other thing is, you know, one of the things I hear and never forget, it's about and I really actually do hold on to that. You know, Judith Herman has this description of what trauma is and that trauma, what we have within the, the problem with trauma is this institutional and worldly forgetting, um, how much we want to forget. Because there were certainly families that we probably all know that were silent. I'm not going to tell that story. I cannot tell that story mm-hmm. again. And then people are left with a legacy of silence, which silence. is also super hard. So we're going back and forth. We're like, let me tell you all the different ways and show you the slide deck of the terrible things that happen or this silence. But you know, the other thing that we're, we're also talking about is that that forgetting was something or the don't forget was something that was told to you all as a Jewish community. I wonder if life would have been better if Christians were asked not to forget either. If you know, if other people were asked not to forget. So it didn't have to be just you. Like it wasn't a Jewish curriculum. What if we... Black curriculum, an anti-racist yes. curriculum. It should just be, this is all we're doing. Right. And, and for, what, for all of us. What if other people could have borne that burden as well? That mm. wouldn't it have been different if you didn't have to feel like that you had to explain the Holocaust to anybody or ever interact with somebody? It's like, well, gee, what's that? Like if that was a shared burden, I wonder if that would be what we could kind of move toward is that it's not just, you know, I think the worry is that we have to like, I'm worried that I'm going to forget because no one else wants to tell this story. Mm-hmm. Allison, thank you so much for asking that question of, it didn't occur to me, what, what would have happened if that burden was placed on not this one 
small group. Mm-hmm. And, and, and now we should use that wisdom for today. <laughs> it really seems very obvious now. It doesn't seem you obvious. Said it and I'm kind of embarrassed. I don't think it's obvious because I think it's how we've been, we've been told that these stories and these scars are only ours to carry. Mm-hmm. And we've been told through either colonization that not only are they ours to carry, but they're, they're our fault. Right. So I think it's only because what you're doing with me now, which is that you are holding an incredible place of vulnerability while also we can talk about our different, like I'm black and you're white and, but you're able to be vulnerable in this kind of place. I think if we actually spent some more time being vulnerable with our stories around that, and it's not some sort of like competition for who was more who oppressed. Had it, right. Because that wasn't that wasn't there at all in this kind of conversation. It, it was how can I understand this, and this is my place of worry, which is very different than let me tell you about how I'm also oppressed. It wasn't mm-hmm. that right. So I wonder if we actually because what you allowed me to do is to share. You know, you shared with me a story and an obligation that I have as a human and as a person that has shared values of kindness and love. I better be telling my kids that story too. I better be telling them that story about what the Holocaust is and not just when they get to the Anne Frank chapter. Exactly. Not just then, right? It's got to be. And that's also the thing that we're seeing as black folks. We don't need Black History Month. Right. We need. Yeah. And let's let's not teach our kids how to be great by ignoring terrible things that have happened. I think that's also the other part that you're Mm -hmm. speaking to is like, how do I tell them something that's so horrible that people are so unkind as the, as the, the, like the lightest term to each other, that they mm-hmm. hurt each other. How do we explain that to them? But again, I think the evidence is not telling our kids hasn't stopped bad things from happening. Right. The evidence is there. It doesn't work. It continues not to work. And so yeah. we do, but how we tell them maybe, you know, and this I think is a forever question, but mm-hmm. you know, how can we share those stories? And one of the things that you asked is we all need to do is I, it didn't occur to me until you said, well, talk within your own family about your history. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, what starting point do we even have? Yeah. And take responsibility for what we've done. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's the other piece that's Im- implied in all of this. It can't just be the story of like how easy everything was or how, blah, 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 but the story of, you know, we did something wrong and how right. do we. You know, the thing that actually comes to mind, and I think he's a genius, um, <laughs> it, it is Mr. Rogers. You know, you, you know that whole quote that yes. he has, which is I like, mean. when things are really terrible, look for helpers. Like, yeah. And I think that we train children to do that. We train them to look for the helpers. And then if you don't see anybody that's a helper, how do you become a helper? Right? So I, I think there's a genius that he's able to talk to people and kids in a way that so deeply resonates. But I think that what, this is what the conversation is. Like, not just look at, in the midst of something terrible and horrible, who helped? You know, who was there to kind of help? What did they do? What did they embody? How do we become those people that help? I, I think that's the conversation about like anti-racism or activism is how to become a helper in all of this. Thank you for listening. This is a conversation I want to hear from everyone about. Please DM me or post right on to Instagram. Let's have this conversation at Raising Good Humans podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't hesitate to write a little review. Tell me what you think. And I'm looking forward to next week. Have a wonderful week. 